Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Shelley Ingram and Willow Mullins, editors of Wait Five Minutes Weather Lore in the 21st Century. How are you guys doing today? Great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, great. Great. I wonder if we could start by listening to you tell us something about yourselves and how you got started on this project. Well, I can start, I guess. Um, hi, I'm Shelley Ingram. Um, I teach folklore at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. And this book started <laughs> because we love the weather. Um, Willow and I, when we were, we went to grad school together. When we were in grad school, we would talk about the weather all the time. Talk about how if we had another, if we had a choice, maybe we'd be meteorologist instead of folklorist. Who knows? Um, and one day, I think it was um, after a after a hurricane or a storm had come through, I was just like, you know what? I've always wanted to do a weather book. So let's do the weather book. And Willow's like, heck yeah, let's do the weather book. So that's how, that's, that's my version of how it started. Yeah, I would say, so I'm Willow Mullins and, um, I would corroborate that story. Uh, I think we both kind of had this longstanding interest in the weather and it was kind of a big joke, um, in some ways, but we also meant it. And that's kind of how we ended up where we ended up. Tell us about the essays in the book. How are they divided? You have three meaningful sections. So our sections, um, it was interesting. When we got the, when we started putting together the essays, we realized how, how much they all spoke to each other um, in a lot of different ways, primarily around questions of belief and believing. So we knew that belief was going to be one of our big sections. And so we started looking at what are the other, what are the other ways that people navigate the weather in their world um, besides belief. Um, And one of those ways was through text, through their writing, through their songs, through their storytelling. And so that became um, a second section, this kind of text. And then finally, you know, one of the things that connects, again, all of these essays is thinking about, um, we kind of came to this idea of, we're looking at vernacular responses to the weather and to climate. And so our last section became tradition, but we say tradition, which really this is kind of vernacular responses to what's going on in the weather and the climate around us. I think something that, that really stood out, and we we talk about this a little bit in the introduction. Um, when we set out to, to write the book uh, and sent out the, that call for papers, we there just hadn't been a lot done in a long time on weather. And um, I think we kind of were expecting a lot of texts and a lot of sort of people talking about tradition and, you know, sayings about the weather that someone had gone and collected or found in an archive. Um, and so those two felt in some ways, well, maybe not obvious, um, but part and parcel of what it is folklorists often look at and do. And when we started getting in the the submissions for the book, 
um, it was really compelling to see how many of them were focused on that issue of belief. Um, and as we sort of talked about it and talked about the, the essays and what we wanted to include in the book and how we were thinking about the weather, that issue of, of belief in the weather kind of became, kept coming up and kept kind of weaving its way through everything, um, whether it was these kind of larger cultural responses or, or that, you know, we use that text term fairly broadly in some ways. Um, but also through people's re- individualized responses to the weather and ways of handling it. And um, so it was interesting. That's this kind of, we've kind of started thinking about it, I think maybe in, in at least this is my memory of it. <laughs> Shelley can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, thinking about it in these sort of as two parts and then really realized that we needed this third part to help be the glue uh, that tied everything together. Yes, so our three parts are belief, text, and tradition. Okay, now that was a photo you discussed in the book, the photo of 1848, the men watching the tornado. What's the story behind this photograph? Uh, I can take this one because I think I'm the one who maybe found it. (laughs) Um, uh, It is a photograph of a tornado. It's a really dynamic photograph and um i think it's the winoka oklahoma is where it's initially sort of attributed to but it turns out that that's not maybe where it's from and it it ends up being um it started this because we were i was kind of toying around with i wonder what kind of historic photos are out there um and there's one of a double tornado um that Shelley, I think you have a copy of that that image. Yes, it's um, hanging on my wall right behind. That's what I thought. Um, but I was sort of thinking, like, what what is the earliest? Like, what is the earliest tornado that we know about? And actually, that double tornado is it, which is not the one we talk about in the book. Um, the one we talk about in the book, I got really interested in it because it kept. It was the same tornado picture kept turning up with different backgrounds, and. Um, really pretty early on gets identified as being a faked photograph. Um, And we know that uh, within a year of photography being invented, people were already producing fake photographs. Um, So this has been with us much longer than Photoshop. Um, But at first it was sort of sent into weather magazines as you know, and, and newspapers and printed as being, here's this horrible tornado that appeared in Oklahoma. Um, but then it was also attributed to Kirksville, Missouri. And um, and then it became the subject of kind of an admonishing letter uh, from the U- U.S. Weather Bureau saying, you know, you you can't go sending us fake photographs of the weather. Like, that's, that's not okay. Um, but what I think was part of the reason I wanted to talk about it and found it compelling was that it, I felt like encapsulated this idea that on some level we think of weather as being this, this thing that we experience in our everyday life um, and as being very true and yet, you know, and, and true with a capital T, like you kind of can't argue with the weather. And yet what we kept finding, you know, that, that issue of belief, um, the, the chapters that people submitted for the book, um, what kept coming back up was that, and what to me this this image really encapsulated was this issue that on some level, weather is a lot about how each individual experiences it and what we believe it to be. And for me, the first time I saw that picture, completely believed it was a picture from Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma is known for having lots of tornadoes, which, you know, Shelley also talks about in one of the one of the introductions that even though Oklahoma is known for having lots of tornadoes, they in fact, Louisiana and Mississippi have more. (laughs) Um, So I think getting at that issue of how we think about the weather is just as important as the weather itself. And then, of course, we see that the implications of that. Um, in terms of 
you know, climate change and the effects and impacts of climate change um, that are that are happening as we speak, and that people still deny, <laughs> um, including what's happening in the Gulf South right now, where it's been record heat, and in fact, all over the world, it's been record heat so hot and yet you have people still believing that this is a normal summer now you talk about the sky is telling it what does the green sky mean the orange sky the ring around the moon what are some of the folk beliefs about that well i'll start with the with the green sky for sure um you know a green sky is how you can tell that there's a tornado coming so when you see a green sky you better be careful because um because the the weather is right for a tornado and what i discovered is that living on the gulf coast there wasn't a very strong sense of the green sky even though it seemed it seemed totally like I looked up, I saw a green sky. I said, uh-oh, I checked the weather and sure enough, we were under a tornado watch. Like it seems obvious that it's a real thing to me. Um, but the, my students in my class didn't know what a green sky was. They didn't know that a green sky was saying, hey, there's a, a tornado coming. So, you know, that's one of that's one of the ways we predict the weather, which I know Willow talks about some in her chapter um, what else? Oh, I heard about, um, you know, the orange sky is usually a, a bad wind um, was was one of the ones that I collected. And and that makes a lot of sense to me, because when in the like when there's a hurricane coming or after a hurricane is hit, you get some of the most beautiful sunsets here. Um, the sunsets are just vivid vivid orange or vivid violet and you that's how you know that there's a bad wind coming um what are some other ones willow um the ring around the moon is one that i've heard in the u.s as predicting either either a change in weather rain or or snow um i've actually heard it a lot in the mountain states in the u.s um talking about snow is coming when you see that ring around the sun or the moon that means there's there's snow coming um, so I relocated to the East coast of Scotland, uh, a year and a half ago, and it's interesting to see how the weather lore is different. <laughs> um, and for one thing, they, they also have that, that red sky at night sailors delight, which I grew up hearing weirdly in the Midwest where we don't have a lot of sailors, <laughs> um, and yet, like, obviously, the lore had come across at some point or another. Um, and in the Midwest, it didn't really ever make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense in Scotland. Um, it is a, a really good predictor of what's going to happen here. But here, the weather's a lot more changeable. Um, so you can get sort of more things packed into a day. And one of the other things that I found really interesting was a lot of the sayings about like April showers bring May flowers is accurate in the United Kingdom in a way that I, it was never accurate in my Missouri childhood um, because the seasons are different and they happen at different times. So it's, it's something I found was interesting, you know, again, that sort of idea about what are our sayings and do they really work? Do they hold up? Now, in your book, you talk about the cultural and social impacts on weather events. Tell us more about that. Hmm. There's so much. I don't know where to start. I think a a simple, maybe a simple way to start is um, the, the thing about naming storms and that named storms, um, when they started naming storms, and this is not research that we did for our book, but it is research other people have done. Um, they Shout were out to my friend and colleague, Liz Skelton, who yes, just did, a, study, who just did a summer study abroad with me in Ireland. So I'll have to make <laughs> sure that she listens. Um, yes, because I, I, it is work that, and it's important work. But when they started naming storms, they named them all for women. Um and now they alternate the names, but they have found that storms named after women, people tend to respond to them as though they are less dangerous. Um, 
than Storm's maimed for men. So there's some subtle sexism that creeps into the way that we respond to a storm, depending on if it has a male or female name. Um, and that's kind of like a really, a really simple one. Um, but I also think about, you know, that just, I don't know, Shelley, do you have some other, other examples? <laughs> um, well, I'm thinking about what I discovered about um, the way that weather shapes our memory. So, so, you know, when we, um, there's a couple of different studies that have shown that we tend to attribute certain big events um, with, say, unusual weather, when in fact there was an unusual weather. You know, I think about, and Willow writes about this in another section of the book, I think about this kind of romantic notion that the weather, that humans and the weather are connected, that the weather expresses some of human emotion. So, you know, the idea about crying, about it raining at a funeral, um, that somehow the weather responds to human emotion. And we tend to, even if we, even if we, don't necessarily think of it that directly there is part of us that still expects the weather to respond to our emotions or to events so if we for example there was a an earthquake in los angeles and and a lot of the reports after talked about how the weather was unusual before the earthquake happened that it was either really hot or it was really cold that it was really windy or that it was really still when in fact it was very ordinary a very typical weather day. But in our memory, we attribute that event um, to the kind of weather event because we think that the weather should respond to our needs and, and our memory. And another way is that we tend to take an outlier um, from our memory, say a really cold, and I talk about this specifically as a specific example, a really cold January from our childhood. And we tend to make that really cold exception kind of um, the norm. So, so then we think back that all of our Christmases were white, when in fact, you know, very few Christmases are actually actually have a lot of snow on the ground, but we, we tend to remember this event as if it is representative of, of history. Um, so it's interesting the way that weather and memory also work together. And that has a real impact on how people kind of think about the world around them, because if they think that their weather was one way when they were, when they were young, you know, that directly influences how they, how they read our present weather, our current weather. Um, and, you know, I was just watching. I was just watching a newscast about a, a recent tornado that happened last month in in the area near my parents where I grew up. And the first thing the the weather the the um, news anchor said was it reminded you of Katrina, and um, and this was you know Katrina Hurricane Katrina happened almost 20 years ago. You know that's a that's a long that's kind of a long time in terms of of cultural memory, um, but it but it hasn't gone away. It's still how Hurricane Katrina is still how people describe the world on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, yesterday was actually the anniversary of the landing of Camille, of Hurricane Camille. Um, it was like fifty fifth, the fifty fourth year. It's been fifty four years since Hurricane Camille hit the Gulf Coast. Um, and that is still a way that time is marked. So you'll find this everywhere. You'll find that time is marked as before or after certain extreme weather events. So it, it kind of orders our both our memory and our notion of, of time passing. Absolutely. I remember, Camille. What are the states that have the highest number of books written about the tornadoes and events of that sort? Oklahoma, I would imagine. Oklahoma, hands down, (laughs) Um, gets all the attention for the tornadoes. (laughs) In your book, you talk about people who are skeptical about the climate change. What is the connection between uh, beliefs and climate change? Uh, That's really it's a that's really complicated um, because I. I think 
it ends up happening on a lot of different trajectories. And it's it's a little bit difficult to, to sort of tease it all apart sometimes because, um, you know, sort of building off of what Shelley was just talking about, about our, our memory ends up impacting how we think about the climate um, and climate change. Political beliefs can also impact whether or not we attribute a warm summer to just being a warm summer or or part of climate change, or even whether or not we think it's a warm summer. Um, and so those that can be sort of one trajectory is that that political belief about it. Um, being now in Europe where climate change is much is much less politicized, it is still politicized, but much less than in the US. Um, and there's a lot more anxiety about it. Um, and part of that is, you know, when I talk to people here, part of that, especially people who are from uh, continental Europe, part of it is that they experienced acid rain in the 80s. Um, and so there's sort of this immediacy to the idea of climate change that uh, that living in the U.S. I didn't see as much. Um but it can also, and I, I think like Emma Bloomfield and Sheila Box chapter and um, does a really nice job of getting at some of the religious beliefs that end up impacting our our understandings and experiences of climate change and whether or not we whether or not people believe it is an issue um, or something that should anything should be done about um, can really ha- be sort of happening at this combination of all these different belief structures uh, and f- as well as individual and family experience. So there can be a lot of layers to that understanding. One of the things that we discovered um, through our, which it seems, again, seems obvious in retrospect, but I don't think we had thought about it in exactly these terms is that a lot of our weather lore is about survival, right? A lot of our weather lore is how to survive um, and and recognizing that we will survive. And I think that this also plays a, a real role in how folks in the U.S. think about climate change. Because if all of our weather lore has kind of primed us to survive these events, like if you if you just buy the bread and milk, you'll survive the snowstorm, right? So this is how you survive a snowstorm: is you go to the store and you brought, buy bread and milk. Um, and eggs. And, you have to have the right? eggs too. <laughs> and the eggs, yes, and the eggs. Um, and so if you know if our weather lore has primed us to believe that weather is something that we can survive, then why would we worry about climate change? Because all of our all of our kind of cultural knowledge says, hey, we're going to survive. It'll be okay. Things won't be as bad as you think they are, um, which is the, the kind of um, intent, which is one of the, the meanings behind that meme with the plastic lawn chair that fell over. And you're like, see, we will survive. We will rebuild. So that, that connection between belief and survival, I think, also speaks a lot to how people in the U.S. think about climate change. Now, you shared many jokes about the weather in the book. Can you give us a few of those jokes? <laughs> um, it, was, it was funny because so one of the big sort of persistent jokes about the weather, weather is, at, is actually about meteorologists. And um, I actually just sent Shelley one of these last week. <laughs> so um, the, the sort of there's a whole genre of jokes about, you know, how many times can a weather you know how many times can the weatherman be wrong you know a clock can be wrong or a clock is always right twice a day but a weatherman can be wrong 90 you know two percent of the time and still keep their job or you know who gets the most money for being always being wrong is a weatherman um so there's a, again though it, ha- it still kind of ends up connecting to to belief in some really interesting ways of you know of how how we respond to the weather that we, we think weather people that meteorologists are wrong a lot of the time, but they're really not. <laughs> um, uh, especially with new models, they're actually pretty accurate, at least with the short term. Um, and then there's, 
Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was trying to think of other other ones. And then there's there is actually the title of our book. The book is "Wait Five Minutes: Whether Law in the 21st Century," Um, because really our long-standing, long-running joke is is every time we're in a new place, we say, um, "What do you think about the weather here?" Right. And so what's the thing about the weather in Missouri? Well, if you don't like it, wait five minutes and it will change. Right. Um, And and like this is it's always so localized. So what you know, the thing about the weather in Texas, if you don't like it, you can wait five minutes and it will change. And we find out that people say that for almost every state. There are a couple of states that we don't see it as much, but almost every state in the U.S. people say that. Um, as if, you know, our weather is somehow is somehow so unpredictable or so changing that you just have to wait five minutes and it will change, which again speaks to this idea about survival, right? That if we just wait five minutes and things will be fine. Um, so that's that's one of the kind of running persistent jokes that shapes the book. Um, which is, it is also kind of ironic because the, it is not a saying I found in <laughs> in Britain at all. People do not say this. Um, and when I have brought it up to, to British people, they're like, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, it just doesn't, in the U.S., that doesn't make any sense. Like, especially in the Midwest, you can see your weather coming for days. Um, so, which they kind of, they kind of have a point. Uh so it is kind of an interesting, you know, persistent. And I, I think it was maybe also one of the things that kind of got us started on this whole topic was finding that finding that joke a bit funny, but also ubiquitous. Like it literally is everywhere in the U.S. Now, you talk about Tom Thierry. Tell us about his dress and the weather. Uh, so, um, this was in, in my chapter about, oh, make sure you can still hear me there. My, my screen went to sleep for a sec. Um, this is in my chapter about, uh, predicting the weather and how we think about predicting the weather. Um, there is a belief that the, as meteorologists, TV meteorologists are usually informal clothing because they're on the news and news presenters wear formal clothing um, for business formal. Um, As the weather gets worse, there is a joke that that sort of circles in a lot of places that, that the weather person, as the weather gets more intense or the predictions of the weather get more intense, um, that they will start to become less formal. So they'll shed layers. They'll take off the jacket. Um, they'll loosen their tie. They'll roll up their sleeves. And what I found kind of interesting about it was it, it this we also it kind of ties into that saying of to like to roll up your sleeves is to really get to work. Um, that things are kind of so intense. They're so busy predicting the weather and modeling and making sure that everyone is safe that they can't be bothered with this kind of business formal um, look anymore. And so it is definitely something that has been attributed to a couple of very specific meteorologists, but it's also like Tom Thierry, um, but it is also a stereotype about meteorologists and the predicting of weather on TV in general, um, which is, is kind of interesting in kind of the performance and that if we think about weather prediction as it, on TV as being something that is performative, um, that there is a performance of threat level that is happening there. And that then becomes turned into a joke of, you know, that you have to take it seriously when Tom Terry loosens his tie. Um, to what extent that's actually an accurate reflection of what goes on is, is again, iffy. Like it really depends on the specific meteorologist. It depends on the weather. It depends on, it depends on a lot of things. Um, depends on the market they're in. Um, but it is a persistent joke. And I also found it, the gendering of it very kind of interesting that there's not really an equivalent for a female meteorologist. Now you also talk about the, Chapter four, Wisconsin idea, the weather, your weather radio show. Tell us about that. Well, that's a chapter that's written um, 
hold on, let me get to that's, it. That's Anne Pryor's chapter. Yes, it's Anne Pryor's uh, chapter. And her husband is one of the folks that's on this, on this radio show. And what she was really interested in bringing to the book is the perspective of actual atmospheric scientists. Like, like this is, this is how they kind of talk about these beliefs about the weather. So she included um, a lot of kind of transcripts and examples of, of a weather show that her husband and his friend is, am I remembering right? That her husband and his friend does and, and how they react to people who call in about chemtrails. Um, and it's, you know, and it's really interesting because, you know, us, us humanities folks want to, you know, well, let's think about this. Let's talk about this. Let's see how this, it, you know, let's think about the humanistic side of this. And here you have atmospheric scientists saying, what, what? <laughs> chemtrails aren't real. And yet they also, as science educators, know that they have to talk about about these issues to a general public in a way that makes in a way that makes sense, in a way that is non-alienating. So this chapter looks at, at the way that kind of science educators and scientists interact with the public who may have com- some kind of conspiracy thinking about the weather and and what that weather is. Um, and you know we're starting to see for a long time folklore has kind of stayed away from big conspiracy theories. We were more interested in the kind of the individual legends that people told, but you're starting to see folklorists kind of tackle these bigger conspiracies like, like harp, um, like cloud seeding, like, you know, chemtrails. Um, and that that's reflected in, in that chapter of the book. Um, the other thing I would say is that I think it also, one of the things that to me was interesting about that chapter was that sort of discrepancy between what scientists are thinking or what sort of those who are in positions of institutional knowledge um, are thinking that that maybe run up against vernacular beliefs about something related or similar or even the same thing. And and we saw that in a few different spaces. And it also come as, comes out in Merritt Hanley's chapter about praying for rain, that sort of what the, the Church of Ireland bishops were saying was important um, about, and, you know, that, that you sh- why you shouldn't pray for rain was really running kind of head up, right up against what the farmer's were believing and, you know, what their needs were. Um, so again, you kind of have, and their beliefs were. And so again, you have this kind of this, this, this gap between institutional knowledge and vernacular knowledge. And, and one of the things I think that, that folklore as a field is really interestingly positioned to do is to help um, create some bridges between those two sets of knowledge um, and and to sort of allow for a for communication to happen and to answer concerns, but from one group to the other, and vice versa. Yeah, I found um, in discussion about um, say tornadoes, like there's a really interesting notion of folk science. It's something that that we kind of talk about is that we do like like people do engage science and the scientific method when they're thinking about their particular place and how weather impacts them, even though we might say, oh, but they're just wrong. But they do often um, engage in a kind of scientific inquiry. Like, like we'll say, I've lived here. I've watched tornadoes come through. Tornadoes always go that way. They never come this way. Well, you know, Climate scientists or, or or meteorologists would say, well, you know, tornadoes go whichever way they want to. But here's a guy who's actually tested it out because he's been watching the way that tornadoes go. And tornadoes don't go up this hill. Tornadoes go around this hill. So it's a really interesting kind of way of thinking about how people who don't have access to radars, don't have access to to all of these kind of scientific instruments, how people 
um, encounter the weather and how they think about it in terms of kind of the natural processes in the natural world, right? Because they don't have access to these tools. Um, so what are what are the ways that we try to, because it's very important for us to know which way tornadoes go. It's very important for us to know, um, you know, what the, the summer is going to be like for our crops. It's very important for us to know, you know, whether or not we need to evacuate for a, for a hurricane. Uh, and so we look to all these kind of reading all these signs to figure it out as, as this kind of um, this kind of folk scientific method. I remember a, a student, I think it was, told me once about an old relative of theirs who was a farmer and had recorded um, on, the, on the frame of their barn, like, I mean, it was like on the wood itself, um, had recorded the sort of a rough temperature, like it's, it's hot today, <laughs> um, and the wind direction... There was three things, um, and rain, I think, was the other one, every day for like 45 years on the frame of their barn. And I mean, that's an incredible record of of the weather without necessarily having, you know, a meteorological background or a scientific background. And yet, obviously, like, they were applying a lot of observational skill um, to a point that I would assume we were able to make a certain amount of prediction about how things were going to go um, in the future. You know, you talk about the communities where um, their livelihood depends on weather. What are some of the practices that these people in the communities do? Um, it's like farming and fishing are kind of the, the, the big obvious ones. Um, being in Scotland and, and probably I, I would expect along the Gulf Coast as well, lighthouse keepers. Um, are are have a very weather dependent job, um, but also like people who drive a lot on the roads because that that can have an impact. Um, I don't know. I think kind of everybody's jobs are dependent on the weather on some level. Yeah. and I mean on a on a kind of grander scale, you know, our our shrimp fishermen in the Gulf South do a blessing of the fleet um, at the opening of shrimping season every year. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a ritual, it's a parade. They get a blessing from a local priest. Um, and, you know, this is a way you ensure a good, you ensure a, you know, a good catch. Um, I was, while I was in Ireland, I learned from um, a mutual friend of ours uh, that that a lot of Irish fishermen put uh, um, you have a bottle of holy water that is you know on a boat to protect against the weather uh, to protect against bad weather. I was just reading something the other day it talked about um, fishermen not knowing how to swim that fishermen weren't supposed to know how to swim because if you learned how to swim that was just inviting bad weather to come knock you off your boat. Um, there's a lot of those beliefs and um down to like the language you use on on a boat i just recently read a phd dissertation on that um in there's again in ireland there's documentation about about basically buying wind um which is really fascinating um that you would sort of barter with with the sea to buy wind um to help improve the fishing or to get you home. Um, I'm trying to think of, there's, I feel like there's lots of, of other stuff. Well, my dad grows a garden every year and he always, you know, and, and in the Gulf, you know, he's on the coast, the Gulf coast. Um, and so that's a very different climate than, than, you know, other places in the U S right. Um, so he, he argues with himself every year about planning before or after good Friday, because that's a, you know, that's a kind of that, that's a, a tradition is that you don't plant until after good Friday. And if you plant before good Friday, you won't have a good crop. But if, if we don't plant before good Friday, you know, it's going it, to, it, it won't work. Um, and in places where that's the kind of general rule, right. Is so you have to make sure that you're not, um, that the ground is defrosted, that you're not going to face another frost. Right. But, but down here, it's like, we want to be eating the new potatoes on Easter. So you have to plant it <laughs> before so that you can, you know, you can start getting the, but he does, he argues with himself about, 
you know, about whether or not he should plant before Good Friday because it feels wrong to go against that piece of, of you know, of weather lore. That's because so one of the things I found out living in Scotland last year was um, you're not supposed to plant, put out, uh, you can plant like potatoes and things like that, but you're not supposed to put out like your flowers, your bedding plants until after the ice saints. And there's four saints who have, have the sound ice in their names. One of them is St. Boniface and I can't remember which St. Pancras. I can't remember the other two. Um, but they have their four saint day, saints days are all kind of right in a row and it's pretty late like i mean it's it's in late may early june maybe um but you shouldn't put out your bedding plants until after the ice saints because the ice saints will bring the last ice of the year and they'll kill your pretty flowers <laughs> so and you um, notice how so much of this is related to kind of like an ecclesiastical calendar right um that kind of cements the connection between weather lore and belief. Um, something, I mean, I was thinking about just, I know living, growing up in the Midwest, um, we all had always had, kids always had things to bring snow days um, to, you know, wearing your pajamas backwards to bed because then you might have a snow day the next day. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, even at the level of sort of children's folklore, it's very much those, those weather beliefs are very present. And I will say one more thing, one of our, one of our chapters, which is, which is mostly about the, this kind of one, this wonderful Barbara King Solver, Solver novel called, um, oh, what is the name of that? Oh my gosh. Uh, um, flight behavior. Flight behavior. <laughs> Yes, thank you. I'm terrible with names, but it's just, it's a great. It, it really is a really great novel. Um, but she opens by talking about trying to buy corn, um, and that you know, in, in upstate New York, which is where she grew up and where her family is, and that they kept waiting for this particular farm to put out their corn because that's the best corn. Um, but they had to wait and they had to wait and they had to wait because the weather's all screwed up and the crops aren't coming in at the right time. So, you know, they had a saying growing up that if the corn, you know, that the corn should be knee high by the 4th of July. And that's how, you know, you're going to have a good crop, but, but it's not happening. It's not happening there. The corn isn't getting knee high by the 4th of July. And so the crop has been delayed. So, you know, she talks in that chapter about this kind of, changing these these changing weather patterns and what it what it does to a community which is one of the things that that king solver talks about in the book um so you know you see these these kinds of of reliance on but also um, estrangement from uh, traditional folk beliefs that are happening as the climate changes now let's move to the last section traditions feeding the storm does it depend on the type of storm, hurricane versus snowstorm, in terms of how people prepare, in terms of food? And if it's more than two days, what happens? <laughs> um, yeah, this is actually really fun. <laughs> um, yes, it does depend on the kind of storm. And there's, some pra- I think, some practical reasons for that. Um you know, I, I start out in that section talking about the the French toast run, which is that going to the store to buy your bread, your eggs, and your milk, um, which, of course, together make French toast uh, if there's a snowstorm coming. And if you think about, like, the, the sort of the staples that we are the most likely to run out of quickly, um, those are the things that, that we probably need. But French toast is also, it's a pretty nourishing thing to eat it's warming it's um a bit heavy but it still has the protein in it like i mean it makes sense why you would want to eat that on a snowy day um if it's more than two days or if it's a hurricane then you're looking at a different set of parameters because you're no longer interested in just sort of surviving the next 24 hours and again it's it really i found was about survival and what are you going to need to survive well if you're if there's a snowstorm coming chances are in a lot of places this is certainly isn't true everywhere in the u.s but in a lot of places you're going to be dug out within a couple of days so you really only need things that'll last you maybe a week at most 
Um, but in, for most people, it's kind of that two to three days and things will get cleared. Now, Lake Tahoe this past year proved us all wrong. <laughs> um, took them, I think, six weeks. But um, if you're looking at a hurricane, you need things that are going to last and in a hot climate when the power is out. So that's a very different set of things. Eggs and milk are going to go bad. And so things like peanut butter, crackers, apples, but also I found people wanted something sort of celebratory. And I, I, the storm food created this really interesting tension because most people who have talked about food have talked about it as either we buy food to just sort of and eat food that we just need to eat um, because we have to eat to survive. Um, and then we have food that we, we share with other people or we, we savor or we keep it as a special treat. Um, if you think about like the food you maybe eat on a special holiday or um, Sunday breakfast or Sunday dinner is often like a very special or um, for a lot of Jewish families, Friday night Seder. Um, there's the foods you eat on those occasions is quite different. Uh, often takes more time to prepare. Often it's sort of special or more rich. Um, storm food kind of moves back and forth between these two categories because on one hand you want stuff that's gonna gonna survive and yet on the other hand you want stuff that is going to kind of keep your spirits up um so there's both these things that are staples like the peanut butter and crackers but also candy um somebody told me they only ever got oreos when there was a hurricane coming um when they were growing up and so you get this kind of interesting tension. If if it's longer than two days, then there is kind of this sense of the, the fresh stuff is running out. And how are you going to, to last? How are you going to sort of parcel this out and still make meals that are, are somewhat appetizing um, and get through until, you know, that snowplow or it comes through or the power gets repaired and turned back on. Um, and so there starts to be a lot more tension about will we survive um, becomes it becomes a pertinent question. So there's a meme that gets that comes up every hurricane season that is just a line that says, I will not eat my hurricane snacks. I will not eat my hurricane snacks because you go to the store and you buy snacks because they're usually non-perishable, they're easy to eat. You don't need light. Like if it's dark, it's easy to op- it's a lot easier to open a bag of chips when it's dark, right? So th- there's this you know playful kind of meme that gets repurposed every time there's a hurricane, which is that I will not eat my hurricane snacks. Um, uh, and and I just saw actually a friend uh, talk about it was time to clean out her freezer because it was August. And since August is the, the month that hurricanes really pick up, she needed to clean out her freezer because if you don't clean out your, if you don't use the stuff in your freezer, it's all going to go bad. And that is, and that's one of the, that's one of the worst things to deal with. I remember after Katrina on the Gulf Coast, there was a ship of chicken that had gotten, um, uh, kind of knocked over and that there were chicken carcasses everywhere, like just Tyson's chicken. And that smell is something that, that stays with people. So emptying out your freezer is a way to kind of avoid that really unpleasant effect from a storm. Um, it's also a way to make gumbo. So that, that's a, that's a kind of an, an important food waste here is that, um, is that you, you just kind of take the meat out of your freezer and you make a gumbo with it uh, in the first day after a hurricane. And you share that gumbo with everyone around you because it's a way to use up your food. Um, and it's something that is celebratory and special while at the same time, practical. Now I also just saw someone else, someone giving away on Facebook MREs, right? Meals ready to eat that, um, that became kind of a symbol of 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 hurricanes after Katrina that you know my family actually ate MREs for a while because that was the only food they could act they had they picked them up from you know National Guard um, and then they ate they ate these MREs while they were waiting 
for services to get to come back. Um, and someone was just like, hey, I've got a stack of MREs who wants them. And someone was like, oh, yeah, I'll take them. So now that's become kind of part of the preparation that folks take um, on the at least on the Gulf Coast. In Chapter 12, you talk about weathering the storm and how people who were under the water before the floods and after the floods, the jobs are not there. Can you tell us about that? Um, I find well, that's that's um my colleague John Loden's chapter, yeah. and I think yeah, I think so. Well, it could also yeah. be Jordan Lovejoy. Yeah, I know we have two on flooding. So, <laughs> but yeah, the, the weathering the storm is John Loden's chapter, um, and he talks about this this kind of legend this joke that was happening after the, um, we had a flood in 2006 in, in my part of Louisiana that um, was kind of, unex- was very unexpected and was very unprecedented. It wasn't attached to a hurricane or anything. It was just rain and it was a thousand year flood. And the legend is that if it's got a note, you let it float. Um, so what people were saying was that people were driving their, their trucks out into the water um, and saying, oh, the flood got it, when really they were just trying to get out of paying their note because they were underwater, they were upside down on the note. It was these, these big trucks that had really expensive notes that cost a lot of money, so they let the, they let the water get it so they could get insurance money. Um, from it and get out from under that debt, right? So it became this this kind of saying: if it's got a note, let it float. Um, and in a in a place where where the economy is is in a lot of ways weather dependent, you know, whether it's in the whether you're there are farmers or they work in you know the oil fields or um, or they work in the hospitality industry, you know, a lot of, a lot of that's connected. A lot of income is kind of connected to issues of, of the weather and the environment and environmental disaster. So finding a way to make these events profitable is something that's important to folks um, here because otherwise, you know, you know, how else are you going to survive in an economy that is so dependent on something like the weather? Chapter 15, the, the art of canning. Is it coming back because of the unpredictable weather? Um, I would say yes. <laughs> um, and I, there is a, I've done a little bit of work on this and, um, you know, to, to this was Claire Schmidt's chapter, and in fairness, this is something Claire and I have spent a lot of time canning tomatoes and talking about. <laughs> um, so I have to give credit to her for for what I've done on this as well. Um, that canning has come back, and there is definitely a noticeable interest among particularly millennials um, in canning. Um, and in producing food to store, pickling is, is another part of it, beer making. Um, and it seems from what I have been able, what we have been able to gather, Claire as well, uh, that it's related to some, to climate anxiety on some level. Um, that there is both a desire to be more connected with the natural world and to do that through through the process of canning um, or through sort of gardening and, and other interactions with sort of the food world. It, it's interesting because it really is kind of, you know, to, it kind of brings us back around to food again. Um, but also to that idea of survival that like, if you have enough stuff stored, and this is, is Claire's argument, if you have enough stuff stored, then you can weather anything, you know, the zombie apocalypse. Um, and that it is also, however, a, a cyclical process that is weather dependent, you know, and, and I think about, you know, something she and I have talked about as we stood there canning tomatoes was whether or not the tomatoes were good that year and what time when they came in, which week they came in um, to the farmer's markets 
And, you know, because your your canning year is really dictated by the crop cycle, which is dictated, of course, by the weather um, and by where you are. So I think there is a certain amount of canning as kind of a, a practical way to mitigate climate anxiety. And that's kind of what Claire's getting at in that chapter and, and, and a way to kind of attempt to survive um, when we don't really know what the future holds and we, we can see climate change happening. We can see the effects of it happening um, and sort of a desire to be prepared now, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? I mean, on some level, I have to admit that, at least for me, it was about weather is cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> but by the same token, I, I think it really, for me at least, came down to thinking about how our folklore allows us to understand the weather, how it allows us to make sense of something that really is an embodied experience and put it into language and share it. Um, But also to sort of draw attention to the ways that, that climate change is changing our expectations of the weather and our ways of navigating what the weather will bring. One of the things that I hear a lot from the more scientifically minded friends of mine is, is, you know, you can't argue with climate change because it's a fact and you can't argue with a fact. Right. And while I am that the facts don't really care, what is it? The facts don't care what you believe. And while I agree that there is climate change and that it is human made and that we have to do something about it. I also get kind of prickly at this idea that what we believe doesn't matter, right? So so thinking about understanding weather lore and understanding our beliefs about the weather is the only way that we are going to actually be able to work together as as a as a world community to do anything about climate change. That if we don't understand why we believe the things we do about the weather, that that, that will never happen. Um, and I, and that was one of the things that I was interested in thinking about through this, through this book. And also that weather is, is, you know, something that has, I, I talked with my students. I just said, how, how does the weather impact your day-to-day life? And they're like, it doesn't. I'm like, Oh, really? So I'm like, so what, how did you decide what to wear today? You know, how did you decide how, like what time you left to get to school? Was it raining or not raining? Was it hot or was it cold? Do you bring an umbrella or not? Do you, do you eat your lunch outside or do you have to be inside? And once they started thinking about these things, they realized how important and what the impact the weather has on, on their life all the time. Um, and in, and in, in like so many of the decisions that we make day to day are based on the weather, like are dependent on the weather. So if, you know, when climate change happens, realizing how much of our world kind of revolves around um, around climate and around weather is is really impactful, I think, for people to understand um, and for people to see. And also that the weather is really kind of awesome. Um, it is it gives us, you know, yes, it's a joke. Like, how's the weather today? Um, and we, we use that as a joke, but it's also, I mean, that's a really important part of, of day-to-day interaction, right? Asking how the weather is. People like to talk about the weather. People like to talk about um, their experiences with it, about how it's unusual or how it's normal or how it's beautiful or how it's nasty. Um, but people like to talk about the weather and something that is so vital and so important to us deserves to be taken seriously. And I think it, I mean, to sort of add on to that, the weather provides us with, yes, it sort of greases the wheels of social interaction and small talk, but it also provides a point of human commonality that we all have to deal with the weather. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people do, they love talking about it, but I think that is, that is part of why is it's a way of saying, I recognize that. I am experiencing the weather and you are also experiencing the weather. Um, and it was funny because uh, even just sort of preparing for this this podcast tonight, 
um, no, it's, it's not evening here. <laughs> um, I actually looked up the weather both in Louisiana where Shelly is and the weather where I am and was sort of thinking about how our our embodied experiences of the weather right now are extremely different from each other. Um, and yet here we are talking about the weather. <laughs> it is so hot here, y'all. It is so hot. Unusually hot. Um, but what's it like in, in Scotland right now? It Willow? is about 62 and it might <sighs> rain later. <laughs> you. The high today is 102. <laughs> Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience the next project you will be working on? I'm um, working on a book with two of my fr- two colleagues on gas station food. Um, I am working on doing some field work on jam making. And this actually is kind of an extension of, so again, food, um, but it is kind of an extension of, uh, the weather book because I'm interested in how local jam makers have responded to to how the weather changes the jam making year. Well, we'll be looking forward to both of those projects. Thank you again for being on the podcast, and we've been thank talk- you. We've been talking with Shelley Ingram and Willow Mullins, the editors of Wait Five Minutes: Weather Lore in the 21st Century. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.